Hi, welcome back to another episode of Humans Aren't Robots, a series of conversations with creative leaders about the modern state of work and the exciting places we can take it. I'm your host as always, Sam Davies, and today I am very happy to present Nicole Dyson. Nicole has been on the podcast before. We've bumped into each other at South Start over the last few years. And as for all the conversations that we're having in this series, season, I met her at South Start earlier in the year. If you haven't heard my first chat with Nicole, let me introduce her. Nicole started her career as a teacher and was working in the education department, teaching young people. And she, she really ran into some barriers with our traditional education system. She saw a massive disconnect between what she was teaching and what young people wanted to learn. And more importantly, how they wanted to learn. So she has started an organization called Future Anything. We actually discussed Future Anything at length during the podcast and, and what it's about and the evolution of that. Interestingly, the core of it is around teaching young people how to be more enterprising and using tools such as design thinking to try and redesign the world around them. Design was another word that popped up during our conversation and design, both for Nicole and I, really is super important in the future of work and the future of our lives. How can we design a better world around us? So a great conversation uh, with Nicole. We touched on a number of other topics around values in the workplace, something we've talked about a lot this season. She had some really interesting insights around how we can champion that as leaders, but also uh, from the ground up. We talked about the future of work. This is something that's very close to Nicole's heart. Um, some crazy stats she's got. 50% of jobs people are training for won't exist when they leave school right now. And the average 12 year old will have 17 jobs over five industries. Kind of follows on a bit from what we were talking about with Ben Colley last week about being adaptable and really having this enterprising spirit. And with Callum too, it's actually been a, a thread throughout this whole season. I won't give too much of it away. I always love chatting with Nicole. It was a pleasure having her on the podcast. And without further ado, let's jump into it. Awesome. We are rolling. Um, thanks so much for coming and having a chat, Nicole. Nice to see you again. Um, maybe just to, just to kick things off, um, let us know what you've been doing today here at South Start and, and just a little bit about yourself. Yeah, cool. Today, I've just come off the back of facilitating our Bright Ideas Summit. Um, last year, we ran this like half day event where we brought a whole bunch of young people together to kind of hear from inspirational speakers and then hopefully think about the change that they can make in the world. And this year, we kind of expanded that half day program to a full day program um, and managed to sell out the seats, I think, in pre-sale. So within sort of four weeks of releasing the tickets last year, we sold out 200 plus tickets for today's event. Um, and also um, live streamed the event to sort of thousands of students beyond Adelaide Town Hall, which was really cool. So we've had a full day of young people thinking about problems and then kind of using a design thinking process to come up with their own innovative ideas that maybe tackle a problem they care about in a really collaborative way with students from their school and also a whole bunch of young people that they wouldn't have met until sort of 9.30 this morning. So it's been really fun to see the evolution of the Bright Ideas Summit and the way that schools and the broader community of young people have really embraced this opportunity to connect to the innovation ecosystem. Nice. And maybe just a little bit about sort of your work outside of this, which is very closely aligned. But. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, so my background is as an educator. I used to work in schools as a high school teacher. And um, I guess the challenge that I noticed as a classroom teacher was that the curriculum that I was being asked to deliver was really far removed from uh, what young people wanted to be learning about. Um, and they were being asked to kind of regurgitate facts back to me. Like the measure of a young person's success was how good they were at memorizing information and then regurgitating it back in the right order. And as I started to sort of move through different leadership positions in schools, I realized that that wasn't really the hallmark of what young people needed when they left school. And so my question was, could we create curriculum opportunities that used curriculum as a provocation for young people to design solutions and actually mimic more of the real world um, through the learning that was happening in the classroom. So I run Future Anything, which is a we used to be called a youth entrepreneurship program, but we're kind of undergoing a bit of an identity crisis at the moment because I don't think it's about entrepreneurship. I think it's about enterprise thinking and how we build a generation of enterprising young people that have this um, independent, energetic spirit and a readiness to act. So I think the noun entrepreneur is overrated, overrated, but the verb of being enterprising I think is really critical. So we work with young people basically helping them to solve problems they care about through design thinking. Um, and we also work with teachers to support them to deliver the kinds of classroom learning that they wish they could in the classroom. That's so interesting because the, the word entrepreneur is, I don't know, it's almost got a, a, a dirty taste to it now, doesn't it? But ent enterprise thinking or, or being enterprising is sounds very different. Yeah, I think um, like STEM was the rage, right, in school. So it was like get the robots in, get the kids coding, like that's going to save them. Mm. Uh, and I think then the next evolution on top of that as far as preparing young people for the future of work was this whole idea of making them entrepreneurs so that every young person was the next Elon Musk. Um, but I think there's nothing more horrifying about the future than thinking <laughs> about every young person being Elon Musk. So. But how do we use the methodology that underpins that entrepreneurial mindset? So how do we teach young people to be enterprising in the way that they approach learning and life? That way it doesn't matter where they go, what industry they step into, they have an ability to see problems as opportunities and then do something about them. Nice. I've, I've got a bunch of questions here which I'm going to try and sort of like co-op back to um, like the – the way you're thinking about education. So I think that, so, I mean, broadly speaking here, we're talking about um, communication and being more honest at work and having more open communication, diversity um, and, and, and values. Right. But then it's interesting because I know you talk about sort of like an, an industrial mode of education and it's the same with business, right? Like this is the way things have always been done. And I think that we have been essentially educated and then brought into a, a system that, really does have a, a set way of this is what going to work looks like, mm. right? And that's, as you know, that's changing. Um, how much is it changing and how quickly is it changing, do you think? And Ooh, yeah, loaded question. Uh, it's definitely changing, not fast enough. Like the rate of exponential change um, with technology means that there's no way the slow moving beast of education is moving fast enough to keep up with um, the shifts that we're seeing in industry at the moment that have only been accelerated by COVID. I mean, three years ago, if somebody had said to me that work from home would be a standard for huge corporations, I would have laughed. Um, and so we've seen this significant shift in the value that we place around the kind of work that we want to do. Um, and more than that, I think how we want to work, which we potentially didn't see pre-pandemic. And that's having a trickle down effect into the education system. 
Um, but I wouldn't say that it's necessarily meeting the need at this stage. I think the challenge is we use this phrase like the future of work and the reality is it's, it's just work. Mm. Like the future is now. <laughs> um, you know, 50% of the jobs that, are, that young people are training for at the moment won't exist by the time they finish school. Or if they do exist, they're going to be radically transformed. Like we've got... Um, the UK, the US, even places in Australia that have uh, like robot nurses and robot pharmacists. So seemingly safe fields of occupation that are being radically transformed by the use of technology and artificial artificial intelligence. Um, how do we prepare young people for a job that they can't even name yet? It's interesting you mentioned um, the value of work. So, so one of the things that I, I sort of ask leaders about is, you know, like, Sure, values are important for a company, and I think most people see that now. But what does that actually mean, and and how do you actually live that? Um, I'm interested, in maybe your take on that, and then and then we can sort of thread that through from an education perspective. Mm. Look, if you haven't like looked at Simon Sinek's Golden Circle stuff, then definitely stop listening to this podcast and actually just pick up that book and have a read or just jump on YouTube. There's actually a five-minute abridged version of his TED Talk if you're feeling time poor. Um, But that whole idea of that people don't buy what we do, they really buy why we do it. Uh, And I think the best organizations or the organizations that will flourish under the challenges that we're facing at the moment are those that are really in touch with why they do what they do. Uh, And I think that young people today, if we talk about... um, the way that young people are approaching work, there is a real shift from maybe my parents' generation that were like, go to work, get a job, do the job. It didn't really matter how horrible that job was. You, Your responsibility as an adult was to adult and go to work. Um, we're seeing a real change in younger generations where they need a reason to go to work and they need to believe in the kind of work that they're doing when they show up. And so if as an organization, you don't know why you do what you do and you can't communicate that to your current employees and potential employees, I think you're at real risk of people tapping out of your work in general. Do you think, so thinking about the sort of um, design thinking kind of mindset and, and, and this idea of sort of like ideate, learn, ideate, and sort of mm. going going through that that loop. It was interesting that Callum McPherson, who was just on before, we were, we were talking about almost like CVs need to be changed to like values and passions, you know. Mm. So so if you're putting a team together for a project, like we want a curious person, we want a, someone that's really interested in in, mm. in hard data and facts, but not even looking at skill set, more about sort of interests or your own personal values. Yeah, I do. I think, you know, no longer is it about what you know, it's about what you can do with what you know. Um, And so I'm not curious. I don't want to know the position you've held, but I want to know what you've, what have you shipped in that job? Um, Tell me about the projects you've shipped, because I think that's really interesting. And I think more than that, potentially when we were making hires 15 years ago, if you saw somebody who had like a number of jobs on their CV, you might see that as a red flag. Um, Whereas I think we're going to continue to see that kind of evolution in the way that people work with moving through roles. But I'm curious to know how do they tell the story of those roles? Like what's the thread that moves between them? Like I did job A and these were the things that I shipped in that position. These were the things that I learned and then that enabled me to move into this position and the next part of my story was this and the next part of my story was this. And so I think it's actually, it's more about the through line, like what's connected, all of those experiences. And I think those connections are actually what you're talking about, like those strengths and values and those core components that don't move regardless of what your job title is. Yeah, or what sort of set of um, challenges 
you're facing currently. Mm. I'd love to read a CV written like that. Let's do it. Yeah. In all the spare time we have. (laughs) Um, Like it's interesting thinking about and like you're taking education, but like, you know, even the term scholar, like this, it's sort of, we're talking about lawyers before and and legalese kind of um, language, um, which I hate, Um, but it's almost like, you're taught to do that so that you can own that little piece of a world where we talk like this and you need to pay us to be able to um, decipher it. We're, mm. we're really the actual, the the guts of what's happening doesn't necessarily need someone with five mm. years education in that specific skill set. Um, it, it will take certain, you know, traits and whatever, whatever skill sets you need. But the, the idea of sort of having to just amass knowledge on one specific thing and then go and do that, like mm. with, with this, you know, the power of information at our fingertips doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah, I mean, the average 12-year-old today will have 17 different jobs over five different careers. So that's like a, a quite a different transition. In saying that, though, if we look at, have you read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outlier? Yeah, so that whole notion of like mastery, those 10,000 hours that we put into a task in order to become like an outlier in that skill, mm-hmm. I think there is still real value in mastery. Um, but I think maybe what's different is that that mastery can be achieved through like a series of different positions or opportunities so if I think about my own through line um, you know one of my first jobs was as a swimming coach and I loved seeing young people do something that they didn't think they could do and I took that through line of seeing young people do something they didn't think they could do and moved into teaching and then obviously from there I've moved into delivering programs with young people but the through line in all of that is this opportunity to create something to ship something that is a vehicle for young people to do things that they didn't think they could do. Um, And so I'm still gaining mastery in that skill, even though my CV will have a bunch of different job titles sitting underneath that experience. It's pretty interesting. Like, um, I've just had 10 years of running um, the same business and I've just sold it. And I've had this sort of, uh, like we're still, we've all come across as a team, but we're, we're sort of a little bit of a period to sort of have hindsight and look back. And like, if you look at my LinkedIn profile, it's like digital noir 10 years, but I think about all the shit that I did in those 10 years. Like it's, it's a, it's, it's, it's a myriad of different roles and, and, and learnings and, but the thread is kind of similar, right. In terms of building something that, you know, that I had a spark of sort of belief in 10 years ago. So, mm. um, and that those 10,000 hours, if you're enjoying something and you're, and you're, and you're going through it, they actually go quickly. If I'd gone back 10 years and I had the intention of building a business for 10 years and selling mm. it, I think the journey would have been different for me. Oh, that's, that's an aside, but. Yeah, hundred percent. Like I think if, uh, you know, when I started playing with what future anything is today, it was, it was a curiosity that I chased that turned into a business. Uh, and I think, I don't know, there's a couple of things in that for young people. How do we create the space in our education system for them to find things to be curious about? If when we talk about careers in the future, we couch that conversation wrapped around responsibility. It doesn't feel like a safe space to feel curious. Um, But the thing is we don't learn what we love without trying new things. So we almost need to experiment and play in order to have the opportunity to find something that we're curious about enough to kind of chase it down the rabbit hole. Um, How do we create those safe spaces, especially, especially, and I think for young people too, to to create diversity of thought and diversity of opinion um but then still you know for everyone to feel safe to be able to to be able to have their own conversation yeah and i think the conversations that we're having with like schools and systems at the moment is how do you teach young people to know who they are because ultimately like we we feel least safe when we don't know who we are and we also can't appreciate 
maybe those that are around us. So I think the cornerstone of any sort of culture that's going to enable safety and belonging is firstly, you have to know a little bit of who you are, like what are your strengths, what are your opportunities, what are the things that you're super good at and then also what are the things that you're not so great at um, and can you be candid about those things? Uh, and the second to that, can you find a space to connect with other people around you to be also to be able to see those things in them, like what they're great at and appreciate that and then potentially the things that they're not great at and how you can support them. And then I think the layer that sits on top of that in the education system is how do we create these channels for that appreciation between teachers and students? Because if I can see those things in the educator that's in front of me, both their strengths and maybe the things that they're not that great at and they can see those things within me, then that shared appreciation of each other is the foundation for that safety and belonging that we need in the classroom. It's actually really interesting thinking about the, like as a teacher, as a leader, or as a, a CEO, as a leader, like, you know, I think good businesses are sort of blurring the lines and, and, and making leaders more uh, transparent and allowing leaders to and be accountable. accountable. I think. Yeah. And vulnerable too. Yeah. Right. And, and allowing them to sort of bring them, their self to the workplace because it's I mean it's you know it's it's hard being a, you know the teacher at the front of a classroom mm. with 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 25 kids there um and to you know maybe that wall feels necessary sometimes and it definitely feels like that as a leader mm. but I think that so some of the things that we've done within the team is like you know disc profiling and, and, mm. and having weirdly open what's your disc profile um ID ah. yeah. um but I, but then I would say that I probably skew a little bit less the not at work right because yeah. it's my own sort of I'd probably I'd be a straight eye, I think. Yeah. Um, but then I sort of had to do that of <laughs> being, being the boss, yeah. um, which is interesting. But then to sit down with, it was it's really fascinating to sit down with someone who, um, Bryony, who works directly with me, like we're literally polar opposites on the, on the mm. chart. And we work really well together, but then we're sort of quite transparent about, you know, understanding that I'm going to be brash and want to just go run here and, and she might want to look at all the details and sit back and analyze the things before we go. But we, we have that understanding that that's just a different operating mode as mm. opposed to a, you're not like me, so this is bad. Mm. But in the schoolyard, I mean, it's the traditional way of education is, is literally siloing kids. Like this is, you know, these are the, these kids, these are these kids and not really been having conversations about the, mm. why we're different. Yeah. And I think maybe we label too much about what we're good at. Like, Hey, I'm good at sport. Cool. Like that. I was a swimmer as a kid. Like I was, so that was a label that I carried, but more than that, like what are the strengths or character traits that kind of underpin that skill um, more than anything else so that we're not pigeonholing people around a job title or around a thing that they're good at, but that that young person who might be an athlete can actually identify, you know what, like I'm a really great culture builder in my team. Like I know when things are going wrong, like I have this amazing way to be able to turn the tide of the conversation that we're having or um, I work really well under pressure. I have great adaptive mindset. So, uh, yeah, when things are going wrong, like I, I have the ability to like really sit in that space of uncertainty and kind of take that and run with it. So I don't know. I think that there's something we need to break down the skills and actually really talk about the strengths that underpin those because th those are the things that will – um, transfer from one occupation into another like those things are not just the stuff that we want in sport like we want them in the workplace and we want them at home we want them in our personal relationships so how we find a safe space to be able to identify that in ourselves and then also share that with the people that are around us I mean it's little wonder why we live in like an anxiety filled world where yeah. nobody knows what the fuck's going on 
it's funny, I'm just going through like an executive kind of training course at the moment, which is really good. And it's, it's all about self-awareness. I think self-awareness seems to be becoming more and more a part of kind of, mm-hmm. um, you know, business speak as, as, as a leader to actually know like, yeah, well, like, well, how do I operate? And how do, how do I talk to my team and how are they going to see me and how am I going to see mm-hmm. them? Um, but coming out of high school, you know, as a 17 year old, like you're like, what, <laughs> what? <laughs> you don't have any of that really. No, and we or don't. for the most part. I don't think so either. I remember the first year that I ran like an entrepreneurial type program with some young people I was working with and we had um, Jen Owen who was at that time the CEO of the Foundation for Young Australians be involved in kind of the Shark Tank showcase experience at the end. And so all the students jumped up and pitched and um, Jan took the stage to kind of announce the winner at which point she went totally rogue, which if you've ever met Jan is pretty standard for her mm-hmm. and announced that she was going to fly a bunch of the teams down to Melbourne um, to spend a week with the FYA team. My little teacher brain was like imploding on itself because <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to get all the paperwork done to take all these young people down to Melbourne? Um, and so we took like, a, I think 11 or 13 students or something similar down to Melbourne and they got to engage in a whole bunch of like workshops and also networking events with some of the FYA crew which for the most part were um, older than they were so they were you know first second third year of university our students were in grade nine so there was that age gap and I remember watching this particular young person who was super introverted at school And he had taken the issue of mental health and decided that he wanted to create um, a podcast series that was run by youth for youth, breaking down the stigma around mental health. And now we're going back like eight years ago. So this was before podcasting was kind of a thing, I think, for young people. And he was so totally committed to this venture that he wanted to make real. But I watched this young person walk into a room of like 20 something year old people and just like bravely step in front of them and share who he is and talk about his idea. And I realized that he was capable of that the whole time, but he just wasn't given the opportunity to kind of stretch himself in that space. And he also wasn't maybe given the reason. Like this mental music podcast that he'd come up with was so important to him that that was his reason for stretching himself. And then second to that, he was given this like beautiful moment to step into a room of people who didn't know him and kind of rewrite his own story with that reason. And he was able to like step into that space and own it. And it was just the (laughs) craziest thing as a teacher to step back and watch this moment of serendipity to see, my gosh, like what could we do for young people if we provided the space and support for, for students to experience that, to have the reason and then also like to have that opportunity. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you can't, you can't necessarily say, right, we're going to teach you confidence, but we could, like, we can give you the opportunity to find something you're passionate about mm. and let the confidence rise through that, um, which is a, a really different thing. The, the sports stuff is super interesting because I think you'll find that kind of the, the people that are passionate about playing sport have that, right? They, mm. they have the ability to run out in the field and, and that's their thing and they mm. found it and they love that. But for someone um, like the, the young guy you were just talking about, you know, maybe he hasn't given, been given the opportunity to find mm. that thing. Yeah, it's super. And I think, look, the passion as a word can be super loaded yeah. as well, right? Because if you don't have it, it feels like everybody else has it. What's and your you passion? Don't. Yeah. yeah. And I think that there's something to be said about we only find passion through chasing that curiosity. 
And in order to identify a curiosity that we want to chase, we have to have a new experience. Um, and so in order to have a new experience, we have to be experimenting. Yeah. And if we look at the way that the traditional education system is modeled, like where do we provide the space for young people to experiment and to play and to feel safe, like to try things and then drop them and then try something else. Mm -hmm. I mean, in Queensland, we brought in like the ATAR system for 11 and 12 you know, uh, don't get me started on the fact that we had an opportunity to rewrite the story of what senior schooling looked like and instead we replicated the same system that every other state has that they'll look to get rid of. But it's interesting because what it's done is because they've got these external exams that are so important in 11 and 12, it's kind of pushed back this exam prep into like year 9 and year 10. And because they want to start the year 11 units halfway through year 10, it means that subject selections for year 11 and 12 in some schools are happening in year 9. My gosh, can you put yourself in the brain of a 14-year-old boy and ask them to think about the next four years of their life, to make decisions about subjects, to get into a uni course, to go into a career that they've probably not even thought about yet because they haven't had enough time or space to experiment with enough stuff. They haven't met enough people um, to know where they could go. They're probably just going to write down engineer if their dad's an engineer or write down doctor if their dad's a doctor because it seems like the safest option um, than, than anything else. So I don't know, we keep pressing our young people down and forcing them to adult before their time and I mm -hmm. think this is what's compounding some of those mental health concerns that we're seeing in our young people through senior school and certainly when they leave school um, and try to navigate life. And then and then coming into uh, like a... a you know, a business that's trying to sort of practice modern kind of, um, you know, open environments and practicing things like, you know, a, a true kind of agile um, methodology. But, and I've, I've seen this a lot where people are like, no, no, just tell me the, tell me the rules. Mm. What, what's the, you know, what are the tram tracks I need to stick with it? And mm. so I'm like, no, like it's pretty flexible here. Oh, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> and if you don't know yourself well enough, like that open-ended. It's frightening. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It, it is. Like, I think we only flourish mm. or thrive with space when we have confidence. So if we don't have confidence in ourselves in that moment, then yeah, I just give me the rule book and tell me what not to do and what to do. And then I can follow that like recipe, I guess. It's interesting. Like I've got a question here around, around diversity. And so just taking diversity as a given, like assuming that we want to have a, a diverse teams, diverse schoolyard mm. with people of, you know, like diversity of thought, culture, gender, everything, like a melting pot sort of in the broader sense of the word, but then how to, from a, from a business sense or an educational sense, foster a safe place and foster the environment where everybody has their voice. But I mean, essentially what you're saying there is with a level of self-awareness that it opens up for people to feel safe to do that. Yeah, I think there's like in order for us to have truly diverse workplaces or spaces, I think there has to be the individuals have to know themselves um, there then needs to be a really explicit culture built that enables that safety. Um, and we hear these things bandied around like, oh, the boss has an open door policy, but is that modelled? Like how explicit is that? Or we have boundaries around when we work, but, um, you know, the boss sends messages at 11 o'clock at night. Uh, yeah, so I think it, it is it's not what you say, it's like how you live. Yeah. Um, and we watch more what people do than we listen to what they say. Yeah, the, the the little subtle things like that over time really do start making up big changes within within teams or within a culture. Um, the the email things a massive one, I think, because and then that will just it just trickles down, and then people just ex expect that. 
It's interesting um, thinking about the self-awareness piece as an example that I've sort of been using in the conversations around like a, a, a moment where you've got a white man with un, you know quite strong unconscious bias and, a, and a, a woman from a different culture coming together and kind of clashing and and me in the middle sort of trying to navigate this you know also as a as a, as a white a white man but then like they interestingly i think if they both were able to actually have a conversation looking at the, the bigger picture that actually would have been the best way to navigate it as opposed to sort of trying to peer media when you have two people thinking they're right and not sort of taking a step back and a breath instead of looking at what you know what is this because it, it, it wasn't a sort of a it wasn't a case of racism or it was it was more just a case of mis bad communication and misunderstanding but mm. then i suppose how do you <laughs> in the workplace how do you foster that you know and, and you're right it comes back to an element of self-awareness but that's also a tricky thing to <laughs> yeah to I foster think, uh, there's definitely i think self-awareness i think there's the culture of the workplace um, and the action that actually speaks into that culture i think there's also protocols and systems so like and look startups are terrible at having protocols and systems because we're just constantly trying to stay alive like do i have enough money in the bank to get through the next week um, but actually what are the systems and processes that set up the norms in the organization and then how do we allow the individuals within that organization to live through those norms and build culture um, and create so i think sometimes in those tricky conversations if there's protocols that underpin the way that we meet and work together then sometimes that can override potentially the conflict because you've got like a fallback system of cool when this happens this is what we do um so you know in the case of conflict in in a team meeting like maybe you have like a five minute rule so there's a five minute timer put on the board and everyone walks away from the table for five minutes and then we come back together and each person has 30 seconds only to sum up how they feel at that moment in time and then you know and one thing that they want to do like or change moving forward and then you kind of move from there so I think that enables a space to almost take, I don't know, take the heat of it out because then you can fall back on a process, um, which means that it's not you forcing somebody to be quiet. You're not silencing anybody in the space. You're falling back on a system that you know works in a scenario like this when it emerges. We were talking about before some um, businesses use like um, taking the other side of the argument. So saying, well, great. So if we're having a heated debate about something saying, right, well, now, Nicole, you're going to take Sam's. Oh, I would hate that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's a good way to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And I think. But just, do you? Or do you just say what you think? Like, interesting. Yeah. How authentic never, are I've, you I've in ne that space? I've, I've, never, I've never done it. I'd be, I'd be interested to say. And you, I think you could only do that if the heat was taken out of it, right? Like if I'm getting into like a really hardcore argument with you over something that matters and you've really pressed my buttons, there's absolutely no way I'm going to sit in front of you and take the other side. So how do you take the heat out of the moment to then be able to cultivate the conversation afterwards as well? What about a, a very interesting incident um, in young people's because I think that a lot of heated arguments happen, well, discussions happen between people that feel comfortable and safe or, or have the personality type to, to speak out. Whereas if you are, um, you know, you don't feel, have the self-confidence, you don't have the, you don't feel like, you have the voice in this conversation, you often just sit back, right? So, mm. you know, the heated argument doesn't, it, it may be happening in, internally, but mm. you don't even get the chance to, to speak your truth, yeah. um, which is really difficult. Yeah, totally. So how do you, I mean, even when we look at a lot of the ways that we like work together, like privilege the extrovert, right? Yeah. Like yeah. the person who has the ability to speak on that behalf. And we forget that many of the systems that we set up are actually, I don't know, they're oppressing those who are not as privileged um, as others. So again, I think it comes back to protocols. 
Like how do we set up that meeting space so that the people who are at the table, like even if you've gotten the diverse voices to the table, how do you curate okay. that space yeah. so that everybody has an opportunity to add value? The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker okay. was a book that, um, yeah, really sort of challenged me on how we curate spaces for people to come together like have a really intentional way and and a lot of it's around you know even simple things about bringing friends together for dinner mm -hmm. who do we bring together and what's the purpose of bringing those people together but that was a cracking book that made me rethink um the intention behind bringing people together and actually almost like set up for what could go right and also potentially what could go wrong before you walk into the space. But that's interesting. It seems to be a common thread through um, your thinking this word design and I, yeah. the same for me because it, that's just putting intentionality onto a, onto a, onto a dinner party, for example, yeah. right? But then there's a certain element of design in that. There's a certain element of not knowing what's going to happen. But totally. then that's, that's, the, that's the magic, yeah. right? <laughs> like that little unknown is what is the catalyst for greatness. But I think you either arrive by design or you get somewhere else by accident. Yeah. So where do you want to go and how do you actually like map that route to get there, knowing that the destination might look different once you're there? And that I'm just thinking from a from a leadership perspective, or or, or from a you know, if you're putting groups together, for example, mm. in a in a classroom or in a um, for a project, it's sort of you know often the a group of extroverts will just get plunge together because they might be friendly or they, they're yeah. the loudest in the room, but totally. it's sort of actually like, how do we actually put together a group here that's going to make, um, give, give diversity of thought and voice? Yeah. I think there's two things for that. I've worked with a number of people who've said they always hire people that are smarter than them in something. And so the intention is to, you know, bring a new person on board that has like a unique skill set that isn't covered within the team. Mm -hmm. And that also creates a sense of confidence for that hire as well, because they're walking in with something that they can command and own, which I think is a really positive place to start. Um, so I think that's really important. And I think the next thing is like as a leadership team, you have to know where you're going. Yeah. You know, and I think maybe for me, particularly as a founder over the last two years, uh, so much of my time has been spent in keeping my head above water and making sure that we're navigating all of the complications to do with the pandemic that I lost sight of the horizon. And it was incredible to sit down at the beginning of this year and kind of go, cool, this year's got to be different. I don't know where we're going. So certainly my team can't back me up in like pushing us in the right direction. So we took like a whole week out for strategy. Um, but pre that, like I've gone back to executive coaching where there's like these two hour blocks that are carved out every two to three weeks for me to sit down and go, cool, where are we at? Where are we going? What are the next steps? And I think in leadership positions, we often take for granted that we know where we're going. Um, but in this rapid rate of change, the horizon shifts so quickly that suddenly we look up and we realize that we don't know what direction we're going in anymore. Mm -hmm. And if we don't know where we're going, everything else is diluted. Like our culture is diluted. The work that our team does is diluted. The messaging that we have with our clients or our customers is diluted. And it's purely because we've been working so much in the position that we've forgotten to step outside to work on the work but there's a there's a shallowness that comes from repetition too right so you sort of just get into a, a into a into a flow or into a, a groove and then you're not sort of looking around you or, or below and you just sort of sort of why are we doing this this way yeah oh, we just we just are we like crafted this whole um, article that we released like early this week about our shift in direction, about how, you know, we're no longer a youth entrepreneurship provider, that we're about building a generation of enterprising thinkers and doers. And it was so nerve wracking clicking send on that to send out because, you know, for the last three years, the tagline on our website has been 
um, around youth entrepreneurship in schools. So if we're not that, does that mean that we're nothing to the people that have been with us for all this time? Um, and so I remember clicking send and then just like frantically watching the MailChimp stats for the next like six hours to see how many opens and, um, and what that would look like. And we've been inundated with people reaching out to us to be like, this is so great. Like we love that you've thought beyond like what's happening now to think about where this space is going in the future. And I like I definitely had that moment of like breathing again after that information came through, but it was just such a reinforcer to go that that time that we carved out at the beginning of the year to go actually as a company, who are we? What do we stand for? Why do we exist in a world where there are a thousand youth entrepreneurship providers to schools? Why would a principal pick us up and say, we want to work with you um, and getting really specific over what we do and why we do it. And then from there, um, thinking about how we actually do that um, and what we deliver, uh, you know, as the products for that work. What was your biggest fear in pressing send, do you think? Like what was the... I think what we've done when I started in 2017, it was because nobody was doing this. Like the Foundation for Young Australians were running $20 Boss um, and that was a very commercial entrepreneurship program. Students got 20 bucks and they needed to turn it into as much cash as they could. There was nothing that had like a social lens to it where young people were solving problems. And so, you know, I stepped into a market where social enterprise itself was not really understood yet, let alone schools um, didn't have any notion of it. So we were new and we were different, but we're five years later now and that's not the case. Like everybody's picked up on that entrepreneur buzzword and as a result there's like a thousand other providers that are working in the space. And I've found myself asking the question around is what we're doing now actually serving the mission that we started with, which was to do education differently. Um, and the answer became like abundantly clear that it wasn't. Mm -hmm. So I think before I clicked send, I was worried that as a founder who employs people, like what if this new change in direction is wrong yeah. and every school reads this and goes, well, they're not for us anymore. Um, we'll pick up one of the other providers who's actually using entrepreneurship in their tagline, in which case there goes my livelihood and your mind capitulates, right? You, you totally disaster scenario this out where I'm going to have to ring my dad and borrow money for the mortgage because, you know, everything's going to fall apart. But in saying that though, as much as I had that fear in the back of my mind, I've also never been more sure of what we're doing. Every time I sat down and looked at what we were building and the work that we were leading and I talked to young people about what mattered to them, there was this, um, I don't know, this level of certainty inside of me that was like, well, if it all crashes and burns, it'll be worth it because this is the right thing to do. And I, I think that there's, you have to come back to that. I think that self-awareness, if I brought it back to it, you have to come back to being aware around what drives you and also listening to those signs and symbols in your body about whether you're on the right path or whether you're not. And I think our body tells us when we're not, like in our mind tells us when we're not, we feel disconcerted, we feel anxious, we feel rattled, we feel irritable, like all of these signs and symbols are ways of our body telling us, hey, this isn't right for you. Um, and so it was leaning into that and realizing that we just managed to, I think, get off course that even though the course correction felt a bit scary, it still felt more right than where we were before. But there's something beautiful in the, in the sense that the, the, the insights that you've had and the things that you're trying to teach kids is exactly what you've just done yourself, right? Like you're, you're like, yeah, like this, we, we need to actually make a shift here and have the guts to, to trust, you know, about that. And, and also look at what's happened, right? So you've, mm -hmm. you've taken the, 
you've you've got you've run one way, realized something has not right, looked at it, and then and then gone another way. And you know, maybe in two years it'll happen again, but you'll have more confidence next time. I think in in that. Yeah, I think I don't know. It's all an evolution, right? Yeah. And I think when we stop growing, we stop moving. So, I think it was just in looking back and realizing that. Um, yeah, we talk to students about how feedback is fuel, right? Yeah. So when you get feedback, that's fuel to get better. And, you know, you you, talk, you look at entrepreneurs like James Dyson who did like over 5,000 prototypes of the first I, vacuum I love before it. he I released love it. I love talk. He's amazing. Yeah. So you look at those kinds of people who live and breathe the pivot in a really positive way off the back of feedback. And yet, even though theoretically we know that's the truth, it's still one of the hardest things to do is to, I think, shift something when it's working to actually move beyond and if it's like it's we would we're we're good so it wasn't even that we were in crisis and we had to change um so how do you continue to evolve when sometimes it feels safer to stay where you are and it wasn't just like a marketing thing so all business is down so we needed you know change the tagline i've listened to dyson speak a couple of times now um someone with such a strong why personally right and and such a strong sense of curiosity um you know, and I had no idea about him, um, but knew his products, you know, were, were were just good products, right? At the end of the day, and it's interesting that sort of how that one person's um, vision and curiosity and sort of obsessiveness over trying to build the best vacuum cleaner to begin with um, kind of has stemmed into you know, such a large organization now and a, and a university he's got. Mm. It's, I don't know if it comes back to what we were talking about around, yeah, like the average 12 year old is going to have 17 different jobs over five different careers. So we know that there's going to be an element of um, transferability across roles and occupations, but still like if we look at James Dyson, like he was, there was mastery in what he did. Like he, had that moment of curiosity that then took him down the rabbit hole and fell into passion, which then became like over those 10,000 hours, like a mastery in a space. But I think he started out as like um, an engineer working on airplanes, right? So it's like, it's it's still, it's still pivoting. hundred percent. And then, yeah, then you, then you, you look back over 10,000 hours and go like, wow, look what we've actually achieved here. Mm. Um, It's exciting. Um, What, looking towards the next 12 months for you like what do you see as some of your or one of your biggest challenges personally or in business yeah that's such a great question i think for us um where we're doing some work with some international schools around piloting the program internationally and that's been a really fun exercise in the sense that so much of what i do being an australian educator is really australian how do you um almost decontextualize this design thinking process so that the methodology works regardless of where you grow up and that language isn't a barrier. So I think that's something I'm really curious about. Like does the methodology hold up when we're working with young people in diverse contexts who are encountering problems that are so far beyond my own understanding and experience? The second thing is um, we've done like a heap of surveying of teachers to work out what their confidence is in the critical capabilities that young people need. So, I mean, the six skills that we're focusing on, like creativity and innovation, project management, adaptive mindset, critical literacy, like it's all the the main communication, you know, the main ones. Um, We've realized that our teachers are actually not that proficient in those skills themselves. And then certainly if they're not confident in them, how are they teaching our young people to be confident in them? So one thing that we're working on is how do we build the capability of educators so that they feel really confident 
teaching adaptive mindset in the classroom so that then our young people can pick up these skills and use them because I think it all starts with the educator at the front of the room. It really does. Um, oh, that, I mean, <laughs> it's an exciting 12 months for you and there's a lot there. I just, I, just from my perspective, it's interesting. I had this teacher in um, U11 and 12 who was an accounting economics teacher. I had zero interest in accounting or economics. Um, like I wouldn't have signed up for them, but he was such an engaging guy and he was he was a business guy that sort of taught as because he was passionate about it and had written uh, written um some of his own um textbook and sort of was his own course and he, he really treated it more like a kind of if you want to come in here and learn then then come in here and learn and i'll teach you and applied everything really real world and it just it felt so mm-hmm. i don't know like um engaging and tangible that you just sort of i don't know you I, you learn economics and accounting in a way that then felt well, how do I know these things? I could, the exact same syllabus taught by someone by rote from a textbook that had no sort of uh, transferable um, context to my life. It just would have been it would have been shit. So it really does make a difference having that that right educator there, right leader. Yeah, and I think like the secret source of like every educator is different, right? Which means that the the flavor that they bring to the classroom is going to work for some students and not work for others. But the cornerstone element is that confidence. Like that educator you encountered obviously just loved that piece of curriculum. And mm. so that confidence yeah, right. and that mastery and that curriculum enabled them to go off script, right? And actually bring themselves to the classroom experience, which then was the catalyst for engagement. That's a nice place then. That's very true though. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time again and all the awesome work you're doing. Yeah. Awesome to be here. Thanks for the invitation. All right. Cheers. Hi everybody. Sam here again. Thank you so much to Nicole for taking some time out of her extremely busy day to sit down and talk to us. She was running the Bright Ideas Summit at South Start. Thank you to all the crew at South Start for allowing Caitlin and myself in with our podcast gear and allowing us to have the conversations that we did. It's always a pleasure. Some great takeaways from that conversation with Nicole. Um, One for me that's just been resonating in my brain is uh, it's not what you say, it's how you live. And I think that's something very critical that we need to not only think about in business, but just in life in general. How can we stay true to our word and stay true to our own personal values and and values that we want to see out there in the world to create a better place for for us and and future generations. So thanks so much, Nicole, for inspiring some thought. And if you enjoyed the podcast, as always, please share it around. And we will catch you next time on Humans Aren't Robots. Thanks.